the very latest from our local ag industry. The Farming Show with Dylan Honkoop is next on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM and KGMI.com. Skagit Farmers Supply operates three full-service agronomy centers, trained agronomists, precision equipment, and a full range of crop protection. Located in western Washington, they market organic bagged products in stores throughout the Northwest, including Hawaii and Alaska, which are available for pickup or delivery. Skagit Farmers Supply services nurseries providing service to large-scale production as well as smaller rural living enthusiasts. Visit SkagitFarmers.com today for all of your agronomy needs. Ready to put some skin in the game? The only sports book north of Snohomish County is now open at Silver Reef Casino Resort. Get in the game with baseball, football, basketball, hockey, and your other favorite sports. Visit Portage Bay Sportsbook and Bar and place your bets today. Sportsbook open daily at 9 a.m. Betting kiosks open 24-7. Silver Reef Casino Resort, located off I-5, exit 260. We've got that. At Silver Reef Casino Resort, we've got that. Escape the hustle and bustle of the city and get ready for a fun and relaxation-filled getaway. Luxury hotel rooms? Yep. Championship golf? Mm-hmm. Top-rated casino with all the best slots and table games? Yes and yes. World-class dining at the region's best and Wine Spectator award-winning steakhouse? Yes, please. The total package is only missing one thing. You. Silver Reef Casino Resort. Located off I-5, exit 260. We've got that. KPUG is the sports leader, bringing you complete coverage of the Seahawks, Mariners, Huskies, and our high school athletes. We put you in the stands of the biggest games, including the Super Bowl, the World Series, March Madness, and state championships. Plus, KPUG features the best in sports analysis and entertainment, from Dan Patrick and Jim Rome to Mike Greenberg and our own Mark Skolton. If it's happening in sports, it's on. KPUG 1170, 97.9 FM, KPUG 1170.com. Seattle Times headline. When it comes to water rights, collaboration beats litigation. Hmm. That's interesting. We... (laughs) If you followed this program at all over the last couple of years, you know we have the tendency to talk about this a lot. The importance of collaboration coming together as a community to work on water issues, not just water rights, but we, as we've been saying here on the program, water management uh, is the crisis that we, it's a water management crisis that the Nooksack Basin faces with flooding, with drought, too much water at some times, not enough at others, uh, very little, if any, ability to actually manage that in a responsible and sustainable way uh, to protect fish, to protect local food and farming, to protect families from flooding. This is all wrapped up into this, and it touches every single part of our community. And so when you see a headline that in the Seattle Times... You know my ears are going to perk up. I think yours should, too, if you're here in in Whatcom County in the Basin. What's this all about? This is talking about what happened in the Yakima Basin. We've talked about the Yakima Basin. We've talked about it both as a cautionary tale on one hand from some of the things that have happened there. We've also talked about it as really a point of inspiration 
of what can happen. So it turns out this article in the Seattle Times uh, is an opinion piece, uh, an editorial written by Scott Ravel and Phil Rigdon um, there in the Yakima Basin. And uh, Phil Rigdon, he, he's a member of the Yakima Nation and superintendent of the Yakima Nation's Natural Resources Department. We reached out to him and trying to get him on the program. It hasn't worked scheduling-wise as of yet, but Scott Ravel joins us right now. He's the manage, uh, manager of the Rosa Irrigation District, um, representing, I guess, in a lot of ways, the interests of the farming community over there in, in uh, the Yakima Basin. He's on the phone with us this morning. Scott, how did... How did this come to be that that you guys put this even put this uh, opinion piece together? I think there's so much in this that folks here in the Nooksack Basin need to be understanding and, and embracing. Well, the primary message is something that uh, both Phil and the Yakima Nation and myself and my irrigation district and most of the other uh, participants and partners in the Yakima Basin Integrated Plan have been saying for quite some time, uh, and that's and, and that the plan goes back to uh, 2008, 2009, and that we're we're able to get more done when we're all pulling in the same direction. And that's mm. you know easy to say. Everybody probably agrees with that in concept, um, but you know it's much harder to put into practice. So working together, what does it take to do that? Actually do that? Like you said, it sounds nice, but in reality, it can be very difficult to make that happen. In the case of the ACMA plan, um, I worked at a different irrigation district at the time. Uh, was there for six and a half years at, down at the bottom of the basin um, and was their representative to the group that was forming the plan back in uh, 2009. And at that point, we went around the room with all of the interests. So that was the conservation community, the state and federal fish managers, Yakima Nation, uh, four or five irrigation districts, municipal entities, counties, um, federal government through several different agencies. Um, and everyone, the one thing that everyone agreed on was that if we did nothing, that would lead us to an unacceptable future. Everybody agreed that the future was going to be unacceptable by doing nothing, continuing to do what we were doing. Which was so, what? What was it that you were doing? Because there, there was already a water rights adjudication filed by the state, what, back in the 70s, and that was still I, on the books, right? Right. So in, in 1977, uh, we had a significant drought in 1977. Um, the state began the adjudication process. Uh, we'd had nearly 30 good water years in a row there had been a significant drought in 1941 so that would have been what 36 36 seasons prior mm -hmm. um, and that resulted in litigation that took several years to uh, hash out and that was actually two irrigation districts went after each other in that case um, and, and in 1941 the entire system was not the full development of the irrigation system had not quite happened the rosa irrigation system came online uh, first water was diverted in 1941 um, construction of the dam and our canal system continued during world war ii but the uh, the rosa system didn't develop out until the middle 1950s uh, the kennewick irrigation district was the bulk of it was built at about that same time so you had additional demand after that that uh, that watershed moment in 1945 right um, when we, they thought they had settled it, they thought they had everything figured out. Right. So the next big drought comes along, um, you know, there's pretty much no water in the river for fish at that point. Um, 
huge, you know, huge uh, losses to growers uh, because they just didn't, you know, didn't have the uh, didn't have the water to grow the crops. And it started off as a uh, the Bureau of Reclamation had miscalculated the total uh, supply of water that year mm. by several orders of magnitude. They came out with something like less than a 10 percent. Uh, allocation, which at the time was, you know, like an earth-shaking thing, uh, never before heard of. Later, re- realized they'd not included any of the return flows, and so the number went up. Um, but uh, and they were they were actually looking at building a pipeline from the Columbia River and pulling crews off of the Alaska pipeline, um, like on a, a almost like a D-Day type scale. Wow! Wow! Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, one thing our district did was we kept a really good file of all the news articles from from the '77 drought and. Um, so it's rather interesting that, you know, they were trying in the space of uh, from early March to late March, just, I mean, throw a lot of money at this to try to get it fixed. And, and in the end, that that solution just didn't wasn't going to work. But um, so fast forward from 1977 to 2009. Uh, so we're now, what, uh, 23, probably another 34 irrigation seasons later. Um, we're in the midst of, uh, we're 34 years into the adjudication at that point. Um, and so we were, um, in, in many cases, most of the major claimants had settled their parts of the adjudication by that point. So people had a pretty good handle as to what they had. And, and that, you know, that helped. Um, you know, all that did was a kind of a snapshot in time. So it just right. doesn't solve problems. It just kind of shows you where you're at. Right. Um, in 2009, was this was coming on the heels of a, a large storage study that had been done uh, for a major uh, irrigation reservoir outside of Sunnyside, um, between Sunnyside and Yakima, and that Congress had directed the Bureau of Reclamation to study. Uh, in the end, the state chose to take another path and look at an integrated water resources plan where you had water for irrigation, water for fish, monkey with the plumbing a little bit, some habitat improvements include the groundwater component, water marketing. And so that eventually evolved into the, the Yakima Basin uh, work group, which was about a 25-member uh, group that spent several months. Uh, we would meet twice a, twice a month all day. Just going through the history, there's dozens, mm. there's hundreds, and there's thousands of pounds of studies that have been done, and most people agreed we didn't need to do more studies. What we need to do was some, you know, implementation. Yeah. And so yeah. we um, worked through, you know, all of the issues with weather changes over time, uh, crop changes over time, fish needs. You know, also during that interim period, we in the 90s we'd had uh, steelhead listed as uh, as threatened under the Endangered Species Act, um, and same with bull trout. So steelhead are regulated by the National Marine Fisheries uh, Service, whereas bull trout are regulated by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And so you got two federal agencies there. They're not always um, in alignment, so they're um, it wasn't like you could just go to one point of contact. And, yeah. and there's yeah. probably about a dozen federal agencies, from uh, BPA to the Forest Service to the Bureau of Reclamation. Um, and the Corps of Engineers, on and on and on, that you know, that had some handle uh, or some some influence here. So that group came together. We worked out the plan. Um, generally speaking, and I'm, I'm summarizing, but yeah, uh, people the, their view was look on on balance because this is a watershed scale plan on on balance. Even though it was taking out some habitat in places, it was replacing it in other places. And on balance, there were net gains, uh, both for 
the ecosystem um, and for, uh, for farmers. And so the plan includes three water storage projects. Those are the pieces that we're particularly interested in. We're also very interested in uh, healthy runs of salmon and steelhead. Uh, we've had a we've had a biologist at our district uh, since the 1980s. Uh, we were very supportive of the 1979 federal legislation uh, in the Yakima Basin, which provided for fish ladders and fish passage. Um, and so, you know, we've we've had we have a 40 plus year history of of supporting fact driven science based decision making regarding fish. Um, we were also supportive and, and helped author the 1994 legislation. Now, that was long before my time. So the second version of the Yakima Basin Enhancement Program was a federal legislation that was approved in 1994 by Congress, actually on Halloween, almost exactly uh, today. Wow. 1994. Yeah. So again, that, uh, that helped. You know, we had a good basis to work from. There. Yeah. And again, we're talking with Scott Ravel right now. He's the manager of the Rosa Irrigation District over in eastern Washington uh, in the Yakima Basin, a basin that went through over 40 years of, of process to get to where they are today, uh, finally with an agreement that's moving forward and, and being cited as a model around the country for dealing with these incredibly complex water issues. Um, in some ways, very similar to what we're facing here in the Nooksack River Basin here in Whatcom County. Um, Scott is one of the co-authors of a recent editorial in the Seattle Times saying, when it comes to water rights, collaboration beats litigation. Now, that litigation part is the water rights adjudication part, and, and we've been talking about that a lot here. Um, if If you guys wouldn't have... Well, I guess uh, real quickly, you, the co-author on this, um, Phil Rigdon, um, with the Yakima Nation uh, Natural Resources Department and a member of the nation, um, he was kind of one of the people at Ground Zero, right, who, who kind of was able to reach out literally over the bed of a pickup truck and, and start a process of building trust. That's correct. So Phil... And Ron Van Gundy, who is my predecessor, who's the had been the manager at the irrigation district uh, from 1982 to 2002, uh, and he he retired and worked uh, part time as our policy director after 2002. He had some health problems. Uh, they sat down and had a conversation out in the parking lot and said, "Hey, you know, what are we going to do about this? We gotta we gotta we gotta figure out a better way." Uh, Derek Sanderson, who is now currently the director of the State Department of Agriculture. Uh, was key to those discussions mm. um, and talking about the different components and how, you know, how the pieces could come together. Um, and, you know, we had a couple of people there who put their careers on the line uh, to try to make, uh, to chart a new path. And, and that was at a time when, and you'll hear, you, I've heard Phil say this publicly on many occasions. I mean, irrigation districts and the tribal, you know, tribal staff and didn't, um, and the tribal government didn't interact a whole lot. Yeah. back then and yeah. and sometimes people were at risk um just by even communicating and mm. um, and it's i will tell verboten. you well yes and, and i can tell you that the world has changed such that uh, when ron passed away in 2017 uh, phil spoke at his funeral wow which was tremendously powerful i mean it was enough i took my family members there to see it wow um, i wanted them to see that uh and and Phil made light of that during uh, when he when he was speaking, and he was kind of only and he tell you he was only kind of partly joking. I think that's what he said at the time. <laughs> but um, you know, hey, don't tell, <laughs> don't tell everyone. You know, I could still get in trouble for this. But yeah, I think he was, 
at that point, I mean, the, the, the relationship had, had warmed and, and it really yeah. boiled down to people, people got to know each other. Um, and, you know, and I, I described this as we've had a, our, the core group has spent a lot of time together. We have traveled all over the country together many, many times. Mm. Um, we've spent a lot of time driving to Olympia for hearings and meetings and briefings. Um, several of us have given presentations about the plan in other parts of the country or in other countries. And wow. um, so we have uh, the State Department of Ecology Office of Columbia River Manager and I, you know, drove up to Alberta and made a presentation on the plan to to farmers in you know in southern Alberta and, uh, and others have been to England and Brazil and mm. Australia. Um, the American Rivers Group paid to fly our our um, our core group down to Glenwood Springs, Colorado, back in 2015, in the middle of a drought, which we made time for, and we spoke to a bunch of ranchers on the west slope of the Colorado River who are all worried about their water being shipped down to San Diego and Los Angeles and, you know, kind of how our group came together. And, and, you know, one of the things we said was, well, if, you know, if you can avoid the 40 years of teeth kicking in court, you know, and just kind of mm. skip ahead to the solution, that would be great. Um, so would that be your message to us here in, in the Nooksack well, avoid, Basin as well? Yeah. I mean, if you can avoid the battle, that's great. Sometimes you have to have the battle to, mm. you know, to real, to get to the point. Um, I, I equate it. I went to a seminar a long time ago on boundary law back when I was a planning director and a, a grizzled old bruised beaten up uh, property lawyer from hmm. downtown Portland said, you know, I guess I've, I've made a lot of money, sent my kids to very good colleges and um, fighting to the knife on, on tiny, tiny, tiny little amounts of land on boundary disputes. But he goes, the bottom line is there comes a point when one of the clients, when the client on one side or the other just says, you know what, I've spent the last dollar, just go make a deal. Mm-hmm. And he goes, so if you can just jump ahead to make a deal. <laughs> yeah, why spend all that? And, <laughs> Which, and, again, and what easy. could you do with all of those resources and right. all that time instead of fight? Yeah, yeah. And that's easy to say in hindsight. Yeah, but, you know, yep. but I but I think that 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 little bit of wisdom's always always stuck with me and where, so where would the where would the yakima basin be right now if that conversation hadn't hadn't happened if that trust wouldn't have been built if the yakima basin integrated plan wouldn't have happened where would where would you be right now well we definitely be a lot farther behind on the habitat improvements um we have had over about a 10-year period significant um absolutely significant uh, improvements removing uh, fish passage barriers. Um, we, many of the canals had already been screened. The intakes had been screened, but um, we've removed a lot of small diversions and opened up new habitat, uh, very high quality habitat for ESA listed steelhead. That probably would not have happened. Why not? Um, well, probably we'd be, we would have been looking at a uh, probably Clean Water Act lawsuit, which had actually mm. been threatened uh, outside of Ellensburg. And so we'd probably still be fighting that. Mm. Um, my irrigation district, because of the 77 drought, has a long history of uh, very aggressive water conservation through piping smaller lateral canals. Um, so we've been doing that since 1983. There has also been a big emphasis basin-wide on on-farm conservation. I don't think we'd be nearly as far uh, with on-farm conservation. Uh, part of that is we were able to get uh, money put into the federal budget for the conservation districts to help uh, growers convert from real like furrow irrigation uh, mm-hmm. to center pivots, more efficient systems. And there's significant labor savings that also accrue in right. addition to water savings. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I think the, you know, those are just a couple of examples, well, you know, long-term water supply planning, long-term uh, water marketing, you know, the, 
I mean, my district leases more water than probably everybody else put together, um, you know, prob- maybe even statewide yeah. know, in a yeah. drought. So those water water um, marketing conversations are, uh, we've actually got some studies going on certain market aspects that, are, that that would not have happened. Because when we go to Olympia or Washington, D.C., we all have the same message. And so that's, that's you know, very, very powerful with our delegation. Yeah. And when we're, and, and even elected representatives and in other states um, and with the, you know, like the committee staff, when we're trying to explain where we're coming from, whether it's, you know, appropriations or the ag committee, you know, whether it's house or Senate um, or natural resources, you know, on the house side. So having one message is huge and we don't always agree. Sometimes we have to agree to not say a few things. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we We have to maintain that trust, right? Right. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. we ha- we have to, you know, sometimes success looks like, well, we're not going to oppose something. Mm-hmm. You know, that's sometimes that's the best we can do. Well, you have to look at the bigger picture and there has to be a give and take yeah. and something that you referenced earlier, too. You can't do anything without having impacts and there will be some negative impacts no matter what you do. But you have to weigh right. that out and look at the big picture and get a net gain overall make better things happen than worse uh there's just so much uh that we can can glean from this here in the nooksack we just have like 30 seconds left we've been talking with scott Ravel with the rosa irrigation district uh over in the yakima area is based in sunnyside representing farmers there working with tribes over there um in recent years and decades to hash out water rights issues and ultimately creating the the Yakima Basin Integrated Plan. Um, in just the last, you know, 15 seconds that we have before we got to run uh, to the break here, Scott, what, what would your advice be uh, for folks here in Whatcom County facing the, the specter of, of this process? Commit to building trust and commit to keeping it over many, many years so that when you go to the other parties and explain that that's a backbreaker issue, they'll believe you and they'll, uh, they'll respect it. Very good advice. Thank you so much. Um, we should have you back sometime because this is such a, a deep uh, subject. I wish we had more to, time to get into it, but thank you so much, uh, Scott uh, Ravel there in, in Sunnyside. My pleasure. Now you can mow, dig, grade, haul, and more with the perfect solution for your property, a Branson tractor. Save your back and your wallet with one of our compact but powerful tractors here at Farmers Equipment Company. Stop by and choose from our full line of Bransons to take on your toughest tasks. With tractors from 19 to 55 horsepower, we have a Branson compact or utility tractor that is perfect for you. Want to use a rotary cutter to tame that tall brush on your property? You can do that. What about snagging a scoop from that pile of gravel to maintain your driveway free of potholes? You can do that too. Branson's six-year warranty along with our factory-trained technicians will make sure your new tractor is always running great. Get the tractor you want and the peace of mind you need at Farmers Equipment Company. To learn more, visit us online at FarmersEquip.com or stop by our locations in Linden or Burlington today. Farmers Equipment Company, serving the Pacific Northwest for over 86 years. If you've been seriously injured in a collision, you need someone who will advocate for you. At Bill Coates Law, they care about your case, they care about you, and they'll stand with you to get a fair settlement. When I was injured by a drunk driver, I knew I wanted an attorney to help me recover full and fair compensation from the insurance company. Of course I wanted a highly rated and successful lawyer who focuses on personal injury law. 
but I also wanted someone local and trustworthy. That's why I chose Whatcom County Attorney Bill Coates. Bill Coates has helped good people who've been badly hurt recover full and fair compensation. You only pay attorney's fees when they win your case, and there is never any charge to meet to discuss your case in person. Bill Coates Law, helping good people who've been badly hurt recover full and fair compensation. In Bellingham, serving Whatcom Island and Skagit counties and online at BillCoatesLaw.com. In the shop. Toyota's still fully vested in the internal combustion engine, and they saw was a visionary of the future being a, uh, a fuel cell vehicle. Steve from Panacea, Kurt from Angler, Brian from Dr. John's, and Dan from Bellingham and Burlington Automotive. The efficiencies there, but find me a location where you can go fuel up your hydrogen fuel cell yeah. here in, in Whatcom <laughs> County. In the shop, 9 to 10 a.m. every Saturday on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM and KGMI.com. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Don't worry about your furnace on the coldest days of the year. Talk with West Mechanical, your independent train dealer, about replacing your old inefficient furnace with a train comfort system. Today, find them at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. Well, unfortunately, what our government tends to do keeps making it more and more and more expensive to grow food. Here in this country, here in Washington State specifically. Actually, right now, uh, we, we need to tackle some stuff actually that the feds uh, have done of late. Welcome back to the Farming Show here on KGMI. Good Saturday morning to you. I am Dylan Honkoop with Whatcom Family Farmers and Save Family Farming. So wh- what's this all about? What, how is government making growing food more expensive yet again? Well, um, this has to do with labor and the cost of harvesting and, and uh, harvesting fruit uh, and other things uh, and running a farm and, and producing food here in Washington. We've talked about it a lot. There's this false narrative that activists have put out. There is no labor shortage, but we know that it absolutely is true. There is an extreme labor shortage in farming in Washington state. It continues to get worse every year and that is one of the big reasons why people our farms are needing to get help from elsewhere because there just aren't the people around here willing to do the work able to do the work that needs to get done on farms to you know grow food so guest workers you know folks who live in another country but want to sign up and say hey yeah i could use to make a lot of extra cash that could change my life i will sign up for a contract to go work for x number of months in wherever in this case we're talking about washington state to help harvest some food or do other jobs on farms and then go back home it's on paper it's a great thing for those folks it's more hassle and more expense for farms and it continues to get more and more expensive Unfortunately, oftentimes it's kind of the the only option farms are faced with to get the, the folks needed to get things done. Joining me right now with Wafla, 
uh, an organization that we've talked with multiple times about this issue and specifically about the H-2A guest worker program is their uh, new CEO, uh, Enrique Gastelum. Welcome to the program this morning, Enrique. Thanks for being here. And, and you know, I want to get into more of the background of how all this works. But first, explain what's going on with this new rule, the, the feds changing the rules, updating the rules, as they say, they've been working on it for a few years, updating the rules for this guest worker program. What did they do? Yeah, good morning, Dylan. Thanks for having me on. Uh, happy Saturday out there to the ag community. Um, yeah, so these new rules are an update to the last version of the H-2A rules, which had been in place since 2010. Um, during the Trump administration, the Trump administration's Department of Labor picked up uh, the baton to start taking a look at the uh, H-2A rules that had been in place for quite some time. Uh, they were looking at ways to, you know, obviously there's uh, nobody's trying to disparage workers or not take care of workers. And so there were a few things there. They were looking to clean up on the worker end, but then there was also a, a lot of balancing being looked at on ways that they could help farmers, uh, the employers of these guest workers, um, lower the costs, lower the bureaucratic uh, paperwork, the, the red tape uh, that it takes to do this program and, and make it much more efficient to use. Because as you said in your opening there, uh, we do not have domestic workers available to do our labor-intensive seasonal agricultural work needed here all over the Pacific Northwest and the United States. I mean, there was something that just came out from employment security in our state uh, last week, uh, an announcement that um, they were patting themselves on the back that they helped place a whopping 11 domestic workers for the nearly 34,000 available H-2A positions in the state of Washington. And so 11 out of 34,000. That's nuts. Just for our state. Just in Washington. Right. Crazy. So the narrative that there's all these workers and people ready and willing and able and clamoring to come do this work is just, it's, it's not true, right? Um, and that was a, you know, the, the pat on the back was, that was a major increase of 1,100% over the prior year because the prior year it was zero. <laughs> and, so, and so, I mean, I guess if you're going on percentages, you know, everybody would love to have that success rate. But when we're looking at straight, uh, if we're looking at uh, the numbers, uh, 11 right. uh, is still well, alarming. Right? The state so. has to study that number or, or I guess not. it's not a study per se, but it's it's an attempt to find workers as part of using this this H-2A program, yeah, right? And employers are, have the onus there as well to find anybody who might be available here locally so their jobs aren't displaced. Yeah, an employer that enters into this program, uh, you are, it is meant to be a U.S. domestic worker protection program. So there's many things in it, but when it comes to recruitment, not only once you uh, get your labor certification from Department of Labor that says, yes, you're approved for the seasonal leave. Yes, you've given enough backup documentation showing that you have a need. You can start recruiting your foreign workers. 
You are also uh, mandated, you know, your jobs get posted federally. They get posted with employment security statewide. You're also required to do some local recruitment through newspapers, other ways in your region. And um, you have to do that up until 50% of the contract. So even if your contract has started, you are still actively have recruitments out there and you have to entertain any willing, abled, um, qualified candidates, that would be U.S. domestic workers, that come knocking on your door and says, hey, I see you have these jobs available, um, and you need to do due diligence and evaluate that. But, yeah, only 11 were placed this last year. So, um, this, this, yeah, so obviously this program is much needed. But so I was getting back, you know, Trump administration picked up the baton to try and rewrite these rules. There was a lot of, um, you know, from the employer uh, advocate side, employee advocate side, a push to have some changes to the rules. And there appeared to be some provisions in there that would have assisted at least on the employer front to make it more cost effective, a little bit more efficient. Um, but uh, we had a change in administration. Then we rolled over to the Biden administration and in 2020. And when they picked it up, they basically scrapped the Trump rule and um, uh, began rewriting it re-released a version in 2021. There was a short period of public comment. And then the uh, rule that is in effect now and will go into effect with um, workers arriving February 13th of 2023 and into the future. Uh, in essence, I would say double down on the employee protection portions. Mm -hmm and basically stripped any and all things that may have been good for employers um, and really doubled down on um, making it much more difficult for um, uh, farm labor contractors that have been an integral part in supporting a lot of our smaller ag businesses or ag businesses that haven't been able to support workers. Um, it's really gone on to shine a very bright enforcement light on that group, a subsection of our industry. It has gone on the attack, I believe, against small growers that have, you know, worked very hard and invested a lot in trying to utilize and access the H-2A program. It has, uh, it's going to make it much more difficult for them Um those that have uh, gotten on in what's called joint employment contracts, and we can dive into that a little bit more. Um, it's created liability for any growers that are partnering up on contracts um, in that if there's a H-day contract violation or an issue with wage and hour at one farm, uh, everybody else on that contract with you, let's say there's five or six farms that are all you know, sharing resources to bring workers all up together, share housing, you know, um, uh, share the work. Uh, you know, I need them for two weeks. You need them for two weeks. Somebody else needs them two weeks. And then the workers go back. We are all now possibly liable for any and all violations that may occur at another farm's work site. Um, and then the last piece. It's crazy being, to me, by the way. I oh, just, it's, like, it's, it's like saying if if you're farming and a farmer breaks, a, say a farmer violates a, a pollution rule, well, then all of the neighbors need to get fined too, even though it wasn't their own fault. I mean, it just, that just makes no sense. Exactly. Exactly. Because <laughs> anyway, well, you're, you're sharing an irrigation ditch three miles down the road. Right. right? Why is it your uh, fault yeah. if you did everything? Uh, anyway, I interrupted <laughs> yeah. again. My apologies. Yes. 
Yeah, so it's it's created quite a bit of concern there. A couple of other things where it came out pretty hard on was because housing is one of the, I would say it's probably the um, first largest financial and structural obstacle to using the H2O program because a farmer has to provide free and clear safe housing for their workers. Um, some people have leaned on public accommodation, transient accommodation locations like hotels and motels in their areas. Um, and this has been a great business relationship amongst the farmers um, and these hotels, motels were maybe um, particularly during COVID when um, tourism was down, uh, movement of just U.S. visitors was down. This was a way where hotels, motels could contract with farmers to house H-2A workers um, and, you know, structures and, and, and give them a place to live and sleep while they're working on these U.S. contracts. Yeah. Well, now there's going to be even much more high scrutiny on those locations and that they have to meet um, some very strict farm worker housing provisions and, you know, basically coming in and saying, well, even if you didn't build your hotel motel like a farm worker housing unit would be built, we're still going to put some um, very stringent rules and regulations on that. And, um, you know, a very extreme example, we had our Oregon conference down in Salem uh, in November, very nice, beautiful hotel. Um, but because the window did not open to the outside, um, we would not have been able to house HPA workers in this beautiful, very well lit uh, hotel. Insane. Right, right. So, um, you know, it's missing a screen on there and stuff like that. And so just things like that, uh, hotel motels are going to be highly scrutinized, which is completely, you know, yeah, if, if there was sort of a, a, you know, hey, you have two years to sort of um, figure this out, um, yeah, that might buy people some time. But this is stuff that's coming now, and yeah. people only have months, and particularly growers that have been utilizing this uh, very uh, needed H2A program for three, four, or five years. They've built their operations around this guaranteed labor supply, right? Mm -hmm. They've relied upon these hotels, motels that they've had these relationships with. And now there's going to be this very serious concern of if I cannot house my workers in these hotels, motels, where do I put them? When with we've seen in the United States, inflation, you know, during and post COVID has just gone through the roof. Construction materials are high. Labor is high. You know, you used to be able to build a bed for, Eleven to fifteen thousand dollars per bed per worker. Now you're easily, easily in the fifteen to twenty thousand dollar range, right? And mm -hmm. where does somebody come up with that capital? And you know, and and so so housing regulations are going to be going to be highly regulated. So that's sort of how we got to where we're at right now. There's some legal challenges occurring at the federal level with the National Council of Agricultural Employers of who Waffle is on their executive committee and. We also, you know, voted with the committee to do a legal challenge audit on some procedural um, possible missteps that the Biden administration made related to the um, Administrative Procedures Act. But um, it's it's a very low percentage of a win, but we've got to do whatever we can to try and stop these rules. So um, we won't know um, if there is a possible stop until there's a 
hearing in front of a um, district court, a federal district court judge in D.C., probably later in January. So we are counseling our membership and anybody using the H-2A plan as if the rules are going into effect. Um, but there could be this low chance this legal challenge wins. There could be a pause to that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, ne- definitely not good lose. I remember when I read the four to 500 pages of text related to the new rules. It was, it was about a gut punch as you were seeing department of labor's commentary go on and on about why they were making certain decisions about proposals in there. And every time you saw an employer advocate or an employer themselves or an association like Waffle submit public comment saying, look, can you please consider this to take down this barrier? It's an antiquated part of the rule or, can you help um, allow staggering of workers during the year, which isn't currently allowed, or maybe extend a, a long a, an employer that's in good standing with DOL has never had violations. Let them have a certification for two years or three years to you know minimize the cost of the applications filing. Right. Any time an employer um, offered suggestion to make the program more positive, it was just shot down by DOL. Well, we're hearing you, but <laughs> we're not going to do that. Right. We need to double down on the worker yeah. enforcement and stuff. And, and, um, but we still continue to see the use of the program skyrocket nationally. And here in the state of Washington, I just looked at our 2022 numbers. I mean, we jumped, I think, uh, about 5,000 workers from 2021 up to 2022. So wow. it's, yeah, yeah. Enrique Gastelum is with us right now. He is CEO at Wafla, um, talking about the new federal uh, updates, changes um, to the H-2A guest worker program rules. Um, we're just about out of time, but real quick, you know, with you joining and you came to Wafla from uh, the Washington State Farm Bureau. Talk about joining the team there, and, and I guess even as a better starting point for folks who don't know what Waffle is all about, yeah, what what does Waffle do? Yeah, so I, uh, yeah, I had spent the last 14 years working for the Washington Farm Bureau in their um, uh, farm safety program, helping consult with businesses. That's how I originally got started at Farm Bureau, and then the last uh, decade, I've been the chief financial officer there, helping oversee the brick and mortar side of the business. And But I've always had a passion for tracking labor stuff. And so when it came time for Dan Fazio uh, to retire, who was the originator of Waffle and the one and only CEO, um, I did see there was some big shoes to fill there. But they had um, him and his staff and their board and the membership had created a very great thing um, at Waffle, who... It became the acronym of Washington Farm Bureau, uh, Washington Farm Labor Association. But as Waffle has grown over the last decade, it's we serve growers in Oregon, Idaho, very uh, strategically positioned across the Pacific Northwest. But then we also have some farms nationally that we assist with. And we basically serve as a quarterback, a facilitator for farmers, um, seasonal employers, landscapers, even hotels uh, that need guest workers to bring safe uh, uh, workers safely to the United States legally um, to support these businesses in utilizing this guest worker program. So we assist the employers with understanding their legal obligations, how to file the applications. Uh, We work with professional recruiters in international countries, predominantly Mexico, but more and more coming from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, 
um, even South Africa, depending on what types of job skills they need. So we help facilitate all of that. We help make sure the workers are transported safely to the United States, get here. Um, we work with the employers to evaluate their housing to make sure it meets standards, best practices sharing, um, and then make sure the workers go home safely at the end of the day. But all of it surrounds and, you know, Waffle is a nonprofit. Uh, we're membership organization based and driven board of directors of our own growers and um, just out to to really help people access and navigate this very complex H2A program. And with the recent, uh, you know, not passing of the um, Farm Worker Modernization Act up yeah. to the U.S. Senate, um, uh, I think we're back to square one on the immigration hmm. front, which means the H2A program is not going anywhere. And it even means it's that much more vital um, for people that are, are using it or possibly want to use it for it to be something that's workable. And, you know, one last piece on, on costs yeah. that I didn't touch on, which is a high one is our runaway adverse effect wage rates and prevailing wages yes. in the yeah. state of Washington. This new rule lowered the statistical methodology used for doing these surveys which any of us that are familiar with the H2A program and see how what's been happening in Washington and Oregon um, with our runaway wages, we are predicting this lower threshold of methodology is only going to cause those to go up that much more. And so uh, we are all communicating as ag advocate associations, um, people looking out for the industry on trying to figure out, you know, and then stack overtime on top of that in our state, right? Yeah. And so we're all looking for ways to try and slow slow that um, fast burning candle on those wages. So well, and, and and what's in the balance? What hangs in the balance is the future of farming and producing food here in Washington State because there it, it can't just infinitely continue to increase in cost. Um, there's a point when it's just not possible to do it and businesses, farmers, folks just won't be able to continue growing various kinds of food depending on what it is and how labor intensive it is here in Washington if this continues on the path that it's on. I don't think that's something that anyone wants, at least I certainly hope not. Uh, Enrique Gastelum with Wafla. Thank you for your time on the program this morning, um, and we'll be checking back as we head toward, you know, we got another farming season ahead, and I'm sure there will be plenty of twists and turns, but we appreciate your uh, time checking in and uh, filling us in on the latest here this morning. Great. Thanks, Dylan. I hope you have a great new year, and thanks for, thanks for having me on. Also, uh, before we run here, just wanted to give you the heads up that Whatcom Family Farmers Education, that's an organization I work with, is excited to announce that uh, we will be holding our second online auction March 13th through 19th, 2023. And special thanks to our title sponsor for that, Larson Gross CPAs and Consultants. Um, the theme is going to be Growing Our Future Together. It fits in with the Whatcom Family Farmers education vibe where our whole mission is to preserve the legacy and future of family farming in Whatcom County by educating and connecting our community with the people who grow our food. Now, why am I telling you about something that's happening in March? Why am I telling you about that now? Because it's time to get donations in. We're getting the pieces together so we can have a great auction coming up in March. Um, so we appreciate your consideration in sponsoring or donating to the auction. 
You could do that online. Go to WhatcomFamilyFarmers.org, and there are links up there where you can find out more about the auction and how to donate, uh, whether it's cash or you want to donate something to be auctioned off. All that to support a future for agriculture education. Again, WhatcomFamilyFarmers.org. Click on Education. It's on the Education page. And uh, funds raised through this whole auction event will support our education programs, including the Real Environmental Action and Leadership Program, uh, helping the greater Washington community work together to continually improve environmental practices and for increased awareness of the family farming community's real environmental action and leadership. Also, Whatcom Farm Circle, which we've talked about here on the show, which is all about connecting kids and agriculture. It's a field trip offered every fall to third grade students. Uh, about 900 students were there this year. It's huge. They get to meet a diverse representation of farmers, industry specialists who give uh, short lessons, hands-on activities, and multiple unique exhibits, including the continually expanding Farming for Life experience, the Northwest Washington Fairgrounds, which you may have seen. Very cool. And of course, this also supports something that's very near and dear to me, the Real Food, Real People podcast, my podcast which is all about taking you on a journey to discover the real stories of the people who grow our food here in Washington. Thanks for being with us. Of course, Saturday Morning Live is next. This has been The Farming Show. Dylan Honkoop with you here on KGMI.